0: Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. Today we have Jamie Blaustein. He is the CEO and co founder of the Sylvia Braffman Mental Health Center. He's also a really longtime friend of mine. Jamie shares his very very powerful story today on the podcast he talks about his journey walking through a really intense drug addiction and um his really rocky road to getting clean uh he shares about how recently he decided to leave his career on wall street to step into this new world um if you're listening to this on the date of release the sylvia Braffman mental health center is actually opening its doors one week from today which is really awesome um obviously we wish them all the best so definitely stay tuned for this story (laughs) All right, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. Today, I'm joined by the CEO and co-founder of the Sylvia Braffman Mental Health Center, who also happens to be my longtime friend, Jamie Blaustein. Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I've uh, been watching from afar as you've launched <laughs> this venture, and uh, it's been really cool to see, you know, the path that it's taken. And I'm very honored to be on.
0: Uh, I mean, you've been very supportive from the beginning. You've sent me so many messages that are so nice, but honestly I'm like ticked that I don't have my don't stress vote Blaustein for success shirt on right now.
1: You know, it's funny. I actually, (laughs) up until like three years ago, I didn't even have one. Like Ah! for context, I handed out like literally like hundreds of shirts back in the day when I was running for class president. And uh, I never kept one of my own. And I was able to uh, to snag one from uh, an old friend. That
0: had one. Oh my gosh! You so you ran all four years and you won all four years. Is that right?
1: More like five, but but yeah, yeah, so <laughs> eighth grade through senior year. And I was a little I sold you short. Sure. I think my senior year because I ran for class and school president, and I think I stepped on some toes. Um, <laughs> but you know, I it it worked out. Did-
0: did you hold a position in National Honor Society too, or no?
1: I don't think so. No, no. I, I'm, I just. So, uh,
0: not that great. I mean, yeah, what, I five know. years I was class really president? The leadership <laughs> department. But literally, so that people know, he would hand out hundreds of shirts every year that said, don't stress, vote Blaustein for success. I had a pink one. I had a blue one. And I was so mad because when I knew that we were doing this interview, I literally like told my mom, like, I was like, do you have the don't stress shirt at your house? Like I was like, where is it? And she was like, it must've gone in a goodwill bag. I don't have it. I'm so mad because how great would that have been if I had that on?
1: You know, I probably could go put it on, but uh, I don't want to make you feel left out. (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's a good shirt and I'm ticked. I don't have mine, but not only were you the class president a thousand times, you were also the prom King.
1: I was, I was. And, um, maybe I'll brag a little bit for you. I don't know if you, uh, if you've revealed that on this podcast, but you were the prom queen, which.
0: That is true. These people are so lucky that are listening to this. I mean, prom royalty right here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, (laughs) I have some good pictures of that.
0: Um, I don't (laughs) know. Do you? Because I don't.
1: I'll send them to you.
0: Please do. Yeah. It was our junior year, prom king, prom queen, royalty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I still have my crown. It's at home.
0: Oh my gosh. Mine is somewhere. It has to be somewhere. It's definitely in one of my boxes that I, because my parents moved about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And they did that annoying thing where they were like, get all your junk out of our house. And I was like, Like, what is the point of having parents? Like, I'm supposed to be able to keep all of my memorabilia in your house.
1: I mean, I don't know about you. I wear mine every day. <laughs> I I'm, put it I'm on. That you don't.
0: <laughs> when I'm feeling low, I put my my crown on and I look at myself and I feel good.
1: No, it's, well, it's very what what therapeutic.
0: <laughs> so the last time I actually saw you, I mean, it's so good to look at your face right now. We're at we're on Zoom for people who don't know, but the last time I saw you in the flesh was at our high school reunion, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think we had like a very brief conversation. Um, yeah, I had, you know, been trying to like touch base with everybody, and, and so we didn't really truly catch up. But you no. know, over the years, a couple texts here, a couple texts there, um, and you know, with social media these days, it's it's sort of easy to see, you know, to get like at least a very high level update on where people are at. But but yeah, no, I'm looking forward to taking a deeper dive and um, you know, having some uh, substantive discussion.
0: Totally. So, you know, we were really close years ago and then, yeah, we kind of lost touch, you know, like you said, other than like a text here or whatever, but because of social media, I always felt like I had like kind of like a, a general idea of what you were up to every so often. And I remember at our, I guess it was at the reunion, you, someone said something about you were drinking water cause you were sober, mm. something like that. And I was kind of like, Oh, like, did I, did I know that? Like, I feel like I kind of knew that I wasn't sure, but I obviously didn't feel comfortable enough to just like walk up to you and be like, so like, tell me, like, we're here with hundreds of people, like in this dark, loud room, you know what I mean? But- very recently, you announced on your social media that you are now leaving your job as an investment banker and you are partnering um with this guy Ben Braffman and you guys and you're now the CEO and co-founder of the Sylvia Braffman Mental Health Center, which is also an addiction recovery center. And so all these articles came out about you on like business Insider. all this stuff came out about you and your, you know, recovery from a drug addiction. and I, started reading it and was floored because like I said, I had known like a little, but I didn't know it all. So I reached out to you. You sent me more stuff. I prepped all weekend because obviously you know me. I don't go into anything fully prepped. And I was like, honestly, like really emotional from it. Like for real. Like I felt like it hit me really hard, like reading all the stuff. And so I, you graciously came, decided to, agree to come on to the So What Else podcast and kind of tell us your story.
1: Yeah. No, there's a a lot to catch you up on. I, I guess, you know, some of the articles and videos that you saw probably do that to some extent.
0: So basically, like, take us to the very beginning, like your very first experience with like alcohol or drugs. Like how old were you? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So first time I drank alcohol, I was probably 15. I was in fourth, 14. I was in eighth grade. I remember it was Passover Seder and, um, you know, my dad gave me, you know, a glass of wine and, you know, the way that it affected me, like the second that I felt a little tipsy, I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is me. And, and that embodied, um, a trend really throughout the first couple years of drinking and you know eventually using where it just affected me differently than it did other people you know and um you know I could go into why that is today you know I don't 100% know if that's a gene if that's a bundle of genes where like if you have x percent then like you have you know the the condition or the disease of alcoholism or addiction I don't know. So some people say it's like an enzyme thing. Some people say it's a chemical you know, imbalance. Um, I don't really know. And I don't really like try to figure it out anymore. I just know that it affected me to the point where like my body just like wanted more. And that is something that I think transferred over to many things in my life, some good and, and some obviously destructive. So yeah, eighth grade, I think very quickly after that, I was really just engaged in like the pursuit of the next thing. And um, and so, yeah, throughout high school, you know, you could look at me and say, you know, he's like a really good, ambitious kid. And and I was. But um, I, you know, very quickly was going to be at a point where um, I lost the power of choice. And and, you know, I think I probably crossed that line into addiction probably around age 17, 18
0: so young. So in high school.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you knew me at 17, 18 and you wouldn't have looked at me and said like, he's an addict. Right. So a lot of it was like under the table. Right. A lot of like uppers during the day, like Adderall was, uh, was a big thing. Um, you know, obviously you probably knew I smoked a lot of weed and it's not really about like what I was doing. It's how I was doing it. It's the Mm -hmm. role that it played in my life. And, there are a lot of people that are like i call them like hard drinkers or hard users and like they really like to get messed up and maybe more than average and maybe it affects them in some way and like it 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 causes consequences but if they absolutely need to stop then they can and that is the difference between somebody like that a hard hard user and somebody who's like an addict right so i would say i crossed that line at 17 Um, But it still looked good on the outside at that point in time.
0: Yeah, I mean, like to paint a picture for people listening who didn't know you, I mean, you were in like all honors classes, class president, like very like good kid, good student, really smart. Like you were going to Michigan, you know, like and so. I knew obviously like that you partied, you know, cause I was like also like really, really a goody two shoes, yeah. like give you crap about it. Like you shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, but I remember one time, I don't know why this memory sticks out in my mind so clearly, but I remember one time you and I were sitting in physics with that teacher, remember that really old lady? Oh yeah. I feel bad. I feel like we terrorized her. I
1: don't remember her name, but yes.
0: She was very cute. But anyway, I remember sitting in physics and saying something to you. It was like a Monday morning. I guess you had been partying that weekend. I said something to you about like doing drugs. And you were like, don't say that. Like, are you kidding me, chick? Like you were like, don't say that. I smoke weed. That is not the same thing. Like you need to chill. You know what I mean? Like, And I remember being like, okay, okay, sorry. You know, like, and so- What do you mean? Like I was
1: taken aback that you would associate me with drugs?
0: Yes. Yeah. Like you were like super offended that I was like, you do drugs. Like, and you were like, no, I don't like, don't I, are you kidding me? Like, look at me. Like, I like, hello, like I'm a great student, you know? And I was like, sorry.
1: I mean, it's funny because I don't remember that exact interaction, but I think that reflects like much of, of what kept me in denial for a long time. Right. It's like, I didn't really, for, you know, putting aside whether you view weed as a drug. Yeah. I was starting to dabble in drugs at that point. But the connotations associated with drugs were something that I I didn't associate my image or you know who I thought I was with. So I was very um, I cared a lot about what people thought of me, and uh, you know that you know I, when I you know take people through the work, just full disclosure, I, I sponsor a ton of guys, and and I talk about the fact that like throughout high school, validation was like one of my first sort of uh, addictions, right? Like like the class president thing, right? It wasn't about the roles and the responsibilities that came with like being the class president. To me, it was a concrete quantitative measure of like, if you vote, give me more votes than this other person, then you must like me and I must be good. You know? So that was the role that it was fulfilling. If you asked me that at the time, I wouldn't have been able to break it down for you like that. But you know, I saw that later
0: on. Yeah, totally. All right. So around 17, 18, you feel like you crossed over that line. So it got, I feel like it got really serious for you when you got to college.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I got to college and I think a couple things happened. Uh, Number one, you know, this, um, you know, again, I don't love the term disease, but this condition, right. It progressed. It's always progressive. Uh, It's never really like going the other direction. Right. So I think I just got to a point where I sort of like reached that line. A um b i had access and exposure to a lot more than i had in high school uh and c you know i was in my mind a big fish in a small pond leading up to that point and now all of a sudden i'm a small fish in a big pond. so there was somewhat of an identity crisis um and like i mentioned the adderall right the uppers um they can really and i, I think this is like really uh undersold in society, because they put so many kids on like Ritalin and Adderall, it, it makes you go like actually crazy. So there was um very quickly on like, if you took me to a doctor, like he may have thought that I was like schizophrenic, right? Because you go into like an amphetamine-induced psychosis if you take very high doses of that drug. So I thought, you know, I'm just doing it to study but you know as an as a good addict i can't take what's prescribed to me right like i i need more um and so i would say that was sort of like when the unmanageability started creeping up and um you know more substances entered the picture um you know it was a lot of uppers a lot of downers and then uh you know the 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 external unmanageability you know um arrests rehabs um, overdoses, stuff like that really kicked off, um, you know, by the middle of college.
0: So you're in college and you, you're like getting arrested and overdosing.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So long, long story short, not, not really overdosing in college. I would say like the really gory stuff kind of happened after, like immediately after college, but okay. by sophomore year, I was off to my first rehab. Um, it was in Michigan and And, you know, at that point in time, like if you were to stop me and say, like, do you think you have a problem? I would have said, like, no, no, this isn't a disease and I don't have a problem. I just like to party. Right. So I didn't think there was a problem, but I did know that the way that it affected me was different than other people. But I was nowhere near, you know, like I I mentioned the disease is progressive. Right. So just like the using and like the, the thinking is progressive. So is like your willingness to accept that like, A, I have this thing and and the only solution for me is really abstinence um, and B, that like, I need to have a drastic shift in in like how I view the world. So I was very far off that sophomore year from like actually getting to that place of surrender, you know, a couple more rehabs and
0: uh,
1: I eventually got there. But but still so wait,
0: hold up. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry.
1: I'm just cutting me you to off. pull back if you want me to go a little oh, bit yeah. more. In the weeds. Oh, you know me.
0: I'll just talk over you if I want to. Go so don't you worry. So sophomore year of college did like your mom make you go to rehab or like you like what happened there? Like Because that's like not yeah. common. for yeah, a yeah, college yeah. kid. So the
1: first many rehabs, I was most definitely strong armed by my family. I was nowhere near saying like I want Usually, don't go to rehab on a winning streak, you know. Right. So, yeah. But but you're also in delusion about how bad the problem really is. So yeah, no, yeah, I was told like you have to go to rehab, or you're not going back to school. Right? Okay. Okay. And then there was like sophomore year, like a very big arrest in uh, in North Caldwell, actually. Um, really. I had uh, I had raided my uncle's medicine cabinet, and really? I uh, I was driving in North Caldwell in a school zone, like beyond impaired. I had like a hundred pills on me and and all this stuff. And I get pulled over and, uh, and you know, they search me and they they think I'm drunk and I'm passing the breathalyzer test. And, you know, obviously they eventually found it. And that was like a big arrest because they tried to charge me with like a different felony for each type of pill that I had. Right. So like, even like a different dosage, right? Like you know, like a two milligrams Xanax was one felony. A one milligram set, you know. So wow. um, that I think sounded the alarms for my family, where they said, "Okay, like we knew he liked to party, but like he's got a he's got a problem." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. the insanity of it is like that. I wasn't even near getting to a point of like really surrendering. You know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. External circumstances really like don't get the job done you know, unfortunately, in in this, if if you are like, you know, the real chronic alcoholic addict.
0: So you somehow graduated college, which I think speaks to like your, how smart you are.
1: I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Like I ended up going back to get my MBA and like all that. I'm still so much more proud. Like in my office, I have my Duke degree up and in my Michigan, I'm so much more proud of the Michigan in a way. Well, Duke to me represents like a rebirth and like my yeah, new yeah. life, but mm-hmm. the Michigan, like you're going to stop at the sophomore. I want to just say it It wasn't like, oh yeah, then I graduated. I was like, there was a lot of like chaos and war stories and and overdoses and psyche R visits. And, you know, I went back to school my senior year and I tried to live in a, in a sober house and I got kicked out of like two of them um, like within like a week.
0: And now, so why did you get kicked out? Cause you relapsed or what? Yeah. I was using yeah okay okay yeah
1: um and there was a lot more drama associated with that but um basically you know then they were like okay you need like big boy rehab like like you need to go away so I was on a plane to Florida um in September of 2010 and that's when I went into a treatment center that yeah I was there for four months I still could not stay clean I was relapsing in this treatment center but you know, somehow you're right. Like I used my, my intelligence and, you know, whatever willpower I had to like get out and like take 18 credits. Like I think I took 21 credits in a particular semester just to like somehow graduate. And then, um, yeah, yeah. I I somehow made it happen, but it was, uh, it was not easy.
0: That's crazy. And so it's really, I don't know. It's wild to me because, I don't even really know how to say it. I guess I haven't like had a lot of interaction with addicts or whatever. And it's like, you see like how Hollywood makes it. And you think like, how could anybody not know if they were like around an addict? But, you know, you say that you went, you were on a plane to Florida, September of 2010. The summer of 2010, I spent a great deal of time with you. You know what I mean? And like, I didn't know partially because I'm really naive and stupid with this stuff, but like partially because I think you were really good at hiding it. Like I, I didn't know, like I remember having one interaction with you where I felt like he was really weird. Like I thought it was weird, but I didn't think like he's doing hard drugs. Like that never came to my mind.
1: I think like as an addict, you could probably pull off like two or three hour windows where like, you can kind of hold it together. But I'm telling you, if you were to like, you know, pull my mom aside and be like, what's going on with Jamie? She'd be like, we don't effing know. Like, like, it's funny because if I were to juxtapose like, like those experiences with what was actually going on, like it was this total chaos. And you know, my, my, my mom, like, you know, we can let, we all laugh about this stuff now. Like it's funny, but summer 2010. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, uh, crazy stories associated with that summer. So Yeah. I I guess it's a combination of you being a little naive and uh, (laughs) and a little bit sneaky, you know, addicts are are chameleons.
0: That's crazy. I mean, so keep going. So basically you were on the plane to Florida. It didn't work out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I got kicked out and, you know, I, I, I got kicked out of another halfway house. Like I had actually, I did, did the math recently. I looked at 12 different homes that I was in between like a two year period and every single one I got kicked out of. When you're in it, like you are intolerable. I, it's, it's hard for me to sort of convey without going, you know, the best thing to do is tell stories because story is really yeah. like illustrated, but,
0: but yeah, tell us, just tell us all the stories.
1: I mean, oh my God. I, it I is like every single place that I was in ended with some sort of like incident or cast, like, you know, a lot of stealing. Right. That's like one thing that addicts do. And I I felt that I had to do that to maintain my habit. Right. But, but it's not like in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, you know what? I'm okay with stealing. Right. The line, what happens is the line of what's okay and what's not starts to move very gradually. And your primary purpose in life becomes getting the next one. Mm -hmm. And so, whereas, you know, it's funny. I remember when I was like three years old four years old, I always prided myself that I never told a lie. Mm-hmm. And then my mom cornered me about something. Um, and I lied because I didn't want to get in trouble. And I remember just feeling like such remorse for like a week that I lied to my mom. Right. So I'm just comparing that to bend down the line. Like that just becomes normal. That's what you do. And you don't yeah. feel like it's a bad thing that you're doing. It's just, it's a survival mechanism, right? Cause mm-hmm. Let's let's just say there was a lot of uh, I mean, I I don't even know which war story to start with. Right. But like I was breaking into my stepmom's house with like gloves, the whole thing, like swiping all of her jewelry. You know, I stole my father's wedding ring. You know, my father passed uh, 10 years ago from this from this uh, disease. He he was an opiate addict. And um, that like while I'm doing that probably hurt me. But yeah. it's you become a shell of yourself and mm-hmm. it becomes very differ, difficult to differentiate the true from the false.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh you know, there was uh there was just a, a lot of that, probably probably mm-hmm. too many stories to tell in, on this podcast, but
0: yeah. Ugh. tell us um so you said you got arrested a lot of times. So you said about the you know in North Caldwell the driving. And then I know that you had one significant arrest in Penn station in New York city. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah.
1: So, so I was, okay. So I I somehow graduated from college and I was like under the delusion that like I had it under control at this point. Right. Because I graduated from college. Right. So I must be good. Yeah. Um, Right. And this is when like heroin really came into the picture, you Mm -hmm. know? So I was, uh, you know, shooting heroin, smoking crack. And this is like, like, like right around the time that I was getting kicked at all these apartments, but I somehow managed to get this job at Morgan Stanley. Like, and the only way that I did that, you know, it was a, it wasn't like a, it was a sales type role. Right. But it was still, mm-hmm. you know,
0: yeah, good job.
1: job. but yeah, I, I could get it based on like my personality and, like interviewing well, versus like having a, a stellar, like academic career. Right. And, um, so I'm in the city. I eventually get fired from that job, like three months in, like shooting heroin in the bathroom, and that's not why I got fired. But um, you know, I, I I failed some tests, the series seven that you need to pass, because I just my mind wasn't there. So I would uh, I would I would take the train from the city to Newark and meet my dealer um, at Newark Penn Station. So I know okay. it's Penn Station. It was actually Newark oh, 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 Penn oh. Station. It's okay, actually a yeah. little bit grimier. Um, yeah, yes,
0: it is. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah, of course, you know, you pick up and like, I'm not going to wait 30 minutes to get home, right? I can't do that. So I have to shoot up in the bathroom. You know, and at this point, like very much physically addicted, like sick. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if yeah. you're familiar with what what that looks like, but, you know, it's called being dope sick. You literally like, you feel sick if you don't have it. So I would wake up every day and I would feel like, like I remember, like I would, I would be like drenched in sweat and like freezing at the same time. Like it, your body really doesn't react well. So, so I'm in the bathroom, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, shooting up, I'm doing my thing. And I walk out of the stall and this cop pushes me against the wall and he says, you effing junkie. Mm-hmm. And that was the fifth, the fifth and thank God final arrest. And that, that was a bad one. You know, that's like, that's a, a pretty wild story to tell on paper. I'm very very lucky because I do recognize that if I was maybe a different color skin or maybe something yeah. else like I may not have been able to bounce back from from that legal record that I had.
0: You yeah, know, so I, and, I,
1: and I was able to because of expungements and the law and you know holding it together when I had to like behave.
0: So tell me about okay so it's like you go to jail like you're arrested and then what who's your call like you call your parents?
1: I was so mortified to tell them at that point that I think it was a couple of days later, I was about to move from the city back to New Jersey because like,
0: okay. Yeah. You know,
1: um, and it was a few days later and, and that was the point where I remember I got, I, you know, soon after I got back, like I got high at home and my brother was like saw me it was like a bad thing. And so my, my parents basically said like, you're out. Yeah. And I was staying at, I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, by the Willowbrook mall, If you're like driving down 46 East, there's this little dingy motel called the King's Inn.
0: Yes. It's like
1: pathetic. Yes. So I literally lived there for a month. Um, And it's like, again, today, like we can laugh about this. Like my brother sent a picture and he was like, the other day, he was like, oh yeah, you're at home. And I was like, oh, nothing like home. Like, you know, fit for a can. And, um, you know, but at the time, obviously it wasn't funny. (laughs) Right. And, And so, yeah, I was living there and I somehow was able to, like when I got that Morgan Stanley job, I had been interviewing at other wealth management firms, and I got an offer at Wells Fargo in Wayne. right? And enough. I was able to like call them up and be like, "Hey, it didn't uh, didn't work out exactly there, but you know, is my offer still on the table?" So, so at that point, um, I started working at at Wells Fargo, but you know, I say working loosely because there's not a whole lot of accountability in that in that job, right? Like you're out okay. there trying, you know, meeting with clients and stuff like that. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, whereas if you're in the office at all times, like you're probably not going to last if you're shooting heroin, I can say, Hey, I'm I'm meeting with this guy and this guy and really just be home, um, you know, doing my thing. So that actually probably prolonged, you know, my using a little bit, but you know, over that next year, when I got home from the city and I got kicked out to the Kings Inn motel, you know, that's when I started going to, I guess, what was my sixth treatment center <clears throat> and this one was outpatient. And this was the first time that I realized, okay, like I'm like a junkie and I like, I really need help. So I'm going to start taking this seriously. So I started going to 12 step meetings. Like I, I, you know, I always say you could hook me up to a lie detector test. Like, are you ever going to use again? And I would pass. Right. Cause I believe that. Yeah. But over that next year, it was a lot of, uh, relapsing in and out, in and out. And it wasn't until December, 2013 that like, I finally got to that point where I was, I was done. Mm.
0: Tell me really quick before you go there about your dad. So you had Mm. mentioned, um, that your dad died of his, from his addiction.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Tell me about a year before he died. You guys were together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I always knew there was something like a little off with my dad. Um, I didn't know that he was like an addict and he had gone to many rehabs and this and that. And I I learned towards the end because I I remember he he took me with my mom to uh, a treatment center and he said, you know, you're going to go in there and see people with like tattoos on their necks and like, you know, no teeth. And you're going to think that you're different. And I want you to know that you're exactly the same. He was front running what he knew would be the delusion that I was under, which was, no, 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 I'm not like that. When in reality, this disease or condition or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't discriminate um, because of his own experience. So he explained to me, look, I, I've been, uh, you know, you're predisposed. Like I have this thing and, um, and you, it looks like you have it too. So the last time that I saw him, which was about a year before he passed, I got kicked out of my mom's and she said, go to your dad's. And I went to my dad's and you know, before I know it, we're like using together, and um, eventually, like we overdosed. And my mom was trying to reach me and and she couldn't. So she drove over there, and she saw the two of us, you know, out Ugh. on the couch, called the ambulance, and, uh, you know, we were taken off in, in in the ambulance, the hospital together. So you um, know that was yeah. that was the last time that I saw him. And then a couple months later, I was in treatment and I remember being on the phone with him. And he said, Oh, I have a hundred days, like clean, like Mm. blah blah And I was like, You're full of shit. Like, you definitely don't. And there was anger there, right? That the relationship was very tense. Okay. But uh about I guess, yeah, a couple months after that, I remember I did this thing called, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, landmark. It's like a weekend seminar, like change your life. My mom was like, just desperate. Like, like they were thinking about like shock therapy for me. Like they didn't know what to do with me. So Mm -hmm. she was like, go, you have to go to the seminar. So I went and there were these little like activities that you would do during the breaks. And one of them was to call somebody that you hadn't spoken to in in a while and and just like tell them that you love them. And so I called him and, and I told him I loved him during that break. And, uh, you know, he passed like two or three days later. So I'm like very grateful for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if it would have sat on my conscience that, you know, the last yeah. interaction I had was me telling him like, you know, F you blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, it's crazy. I look at like, sometimes I was telling you the other day, I look at like Facebook messages back and forth. And I remember, I saw one recently with me and my uncle. And he's saying like, your dad is, is not going to make it very long. Like if you care about him, like you should say something. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, no, I, that's to me, God, right. Like, like yeah. God had me pick up that phone because now, you know, that was, that was tough of course, but like, I, I look back and I realize he is exactly the same as me. The only mm-hmm. difference is like, I was given a solution and I was completely like reborn as a result of that. And he wasn't lucky enough to get that, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't look at it like I'm not sad about it anymore. I, I sort of like celebrate his life versus more his mm-hmm. death. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was obviously like a very uh intense situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's heavy. I'm so sorry. <sighs> um all right. Practically speaking, though, like I'm sure people are wondering, people like me, you went into this a little bit, but like, how does somebody financially support their drug habit? You know what I mean? Like, like, how do you like pay to live, even if it's at the King's Inn or whatever the heck it's called? Like, you know, like, how were you like paying that and drug? Like, you know what I mean? Like, did you I mean, make that much money? Ad-
1: addicts are, are very resourceful. And um, no, I mean, there were a lot of times where I mean, the answer is you have a trust fund or you steal. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Right. So yeah, yeah. I remember going to like the pawn shop, like literally every day, like, and I would bring whatever I could take just to get something to like, get by that day. So I was bringing my my work laptop and like pawning it every day. And then like, Oh, well I have to go to work tomorrow. I can't show up without my laptop. So I need to take something else and then get it out. And then when work is over, go back to the pawn shop and give them the laptop and, I mean, again, I have so many like warsters. I would like walk out of work with like desktop, literally like desktop computers, like in my bag, like walk past people and say like, have a great weekend. And, like, I felt
0: like, oh my I know this is like
1: hard for you to hear. Like you're like, I don't, I know. like, I'm not sad about any of this anymore. And I, yeah, I, I know right. we're going to get more to, you know, into like what it's like today and the solution. And yeah. Them. Yeah. But yeah, no, at the time, um, you have to steal. Right. Because my, my dope yeah. habit was like, it was like 250, 300 a day. You know, it was like 200, 200 bucks of heroin, like 70 crack and then like miscellaneous, you know? So yeah. Um, it's not a coincidence that like the vast majority of people who are incarcerated are addicts. Right.
0: Yeah. So you've told us a little bit about how obviously the stranger relationship with your family A lot, like you said, your mom had to kick you out. Like you went and stayed with your dad, and the whole thing with your dad. Like obviously, this was a thing. Did you have friends? Like, are you able to have relationships through like this kind of an addiction?
1: Not really, to be honest. I mean, you know, right? Like, I was like a lot of friends in high school, right? Everyone. Oh yeah. In my life, like minus that period, like I've been somebody that people tend to gravitate towards, and just like a fun-loving, like you know. um, gregarious person
0: yeah very engaging
1: yeah and 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 no like a you 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 have little interest in friendships b who wants to be friends with somebody where like you have to like you know make sure your wallet's there yes and and c like you give off like a very dark energy you know forget about the way i looked right like my arms were black my skin Mm -hmm. was like gray my eyes were like yellow but beyond that, it's just like the the wavelength that you're operating at is like it repels people, right? So no, no, you know, I have like a lot of like you know lifelong friends that would check in with me here or there, but everybody was sort of like done. They were like, all right, like this is getting old. Um, and the and the real blessing of recovery is like all of those relationships and a lot more have been like not only restored but like really just advanced beyond where they would have been, because I have a formal, you know, I had to go back and, you know, formally make amends to a lot of these people. And, you know, that completely like unblocks the relationship.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us about, I heard you share a story in either one of the articles or the videos I watched when I was preparing for this. And you were talking about one day you were driving to Newark and you were crying and you were like praying, like, God, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And you, do you remember the day I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was, um, it was on a Friday and I was like, you know, I would pick up in Newark. And I remember like, I was trying so hard. I was white knuckling it. Like, I really don't want to do this anymore. But like, you get a thought and you're on autopilot, right? So like my body is moving, but like my mind is saying no. And I remember just like, like crying on the way down. Like, I don't want to do this. Like I have literally no, like my foot is on the gas and like, I'm going like, you can't talk me out of it. And so I picked up like all of these drugs and I'm driving back and like my mood picking up was always my favorite part. Cause it, it, you know, I knew what came after that. And I remember driving back and I got, got like this fear, like, you know, there's a lot of fear in general at this time. And I just threw it instinctively out the window. And, and then I like, I'm pulling in my driveway. And like, again, on autopilot, I literally turn around and I go back to Newark and I get, I forgot, I think there was some transaction in between where I had to get more money because obviously I had none. But, uh, you know, that's, that I think is a good story that embodies like the insanity of this thing and the powerlessness.
0: Yes, absolutely. Just the fact that like you threw it out the window. And it would like, so you would think like victory, like he did it. Yeah, like he, yeah, yeah. he bought the stuff and then he threw it the, And then you're like, yeah. no. And then you go right Yeah, it's so funny. It. I
1: tell that story in like rehabs and like mm-hmm. everybody's like reaction was like, oh, like they're so appalled that I would throw Like why would you it, waste Because they're still so obsessive <laughs> about it. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that was a Friday. And then that Sunday, I remember, you know, I grabbed somebody who like, he ended up being my first sponsor. who's kind of like a father, brother, sponsor all kind of like friend all wrapped up in one and he was like just look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself can you go seven days without picking up and if you can't then you you definitely you probably need to go away so I remember uh you know long story short I woke up that Monday and I went into work and I I immediately called like the employee benefits line and I was like the last thing you want to do is go to treatment when like you're at at a job right?" There's a lot of like shame that comes with that. People are going to know, but like, at this point, like I was about to die, like literally about to die. And, uh, and so I was in treatment a few days later. So that was the day before Christmas Eve, 2013, the following day, uh, on a plane to Florida. And, uh, you know, that started my, my journey.
0: I remember you said that right before you got on the plane to Florida, the time that was your last time, like in rehab, like the time that stuck, quote unquote, you did your last little bit of heroin, like right before you got on the plane, just to like use it up.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that vividly. Um, yeah. I mean, you don't go to rehab sober, you know? Yeah. And it's so funny. I actually spoke there uh, last week. Or no, what's, oh, what's wow. the last? I don't know. I spoke there the other day at that detox. You know, I went to re- uh, detox first. That's yeah, kind of...
0: What is that like?
1: Well... It's not fun, obviously, but it's a little more cushy than rehab because they, they try to make you feel comfortable and like they're, they're, they're weeding you off of stuff. So then when you get to rehab, like you get smacked with like the real withdrawal, which is, uh, not fun.
0: Yeah. 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 All right. So you talk about, I've heard you say it a lot of times you talk about like your great surrender, like tell us about that.
1: I just, you know, the best way I can describe it is that it went from my head to my heart, you know, the previous three years, like I knew I was an addict. I knew that like, unless I had this sort of like monumental shift that I had heard people who are recovering have that like, I, I wasn't going to get better. And for the first time, like I just felt it. And I just knew that there was literally no other Avenue. And, you know, on a, on the brighter side, like simultaneous, At the same time, like I saw people that were, you know, now good friends of mine who were like one year sober, two years sober. And they were like young guys and they were like, they were like lit up and happy and like living life sober. And so I had a little bit of hope that like, okay, this thing is accessible. I just, you know, now I feel like, I feel like if I don't get it now, like it's over. And, um, you know, by the same token, the guy Ian that, that ended up sponsoring me said, you know, if you don't do the work, you're not going to change. And if you don't change, you're not going to stay. And when he said, do the work, he was referring to the 12 steps, which is another way of saying, I need to have like a spiritual awakening. I need to have, you know, other definitions of like a psychic shift a change. I need Because if I don't, then I'll get out of rehab. I'll start feeling a little bit better. I'll believe the lie that I could do one or I deserve it or nobody will know whatever it may be. And I'll pick up and I'll kick off that I'll kick it off. And, and, and so I really believe like, okay, I, I need to get to work and like do this thing that this guy is telling me to do. So, so that's what I did. And that, that is, I think what's, I know what's responsible for the fact that like, I mean, I'm almost like embarrassed to say it in meetings. Like like and share with people. Like I do because it gives people so much hope, but like my life today on paper versus then like, Frankly, I've not seen I, by the way, I say this with zero ego. I take no credit for this, but such a low that I was at to such a high that I'm at now in such a short period of time. Oh, yeah. um, It's just like absolutely remarkable.
0: Uh, No, for real, though, like even as talking to my husband, Scott, over the weekend about this interview, he was like, he's 32. Like he was like, I, I, he's lived like a thousand lifetimes. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's like how, like the amount that he's accomplished in his career while also like battling an addiction and then being in rehab and being back and now look at where he is. Like, that's incredible. Like it really yeah, is.
1: It's, it's wild. It's just so wild.
0: I read in an interview that you did that you said, over time, I've realized that a spiritual solution solved 95% of my problems. Mm. Explain that to us.
1: Okay. So like I said- I credit the 12 steps and what the 12 steps is, it's a a path to, to believing in God, right. And to trusting in God. And that's what I needed because my problem primarily was a spiritual malady or like a whole, right. Like an outlook on the world, a general sense of being unfulfilled, you know, like, as opposed to a purely like chemical, imbalance or something like that. So that that's like, I'm like cookie cutter, addict alcoholic. And the good news is like, that's the solution for that. It's like very cut and dry. I think the context of that quote was in my facility, which I'm sure we'll get to, we're going to be doing mental health, primary mental health, as well as addiction and there are some people that I think they use and maybe they're addicts, maybe they're just hard users where like they have a major chemical imbalance going on. And like maybe medic, medic- medication will solve 50 percent of what their issue is and like yeah. spirituality will solve the other. And I hate to quantify it. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm trying to say is like that that's what I needed. And then on top of that, you know, that remaining five percent, like I needed a little tweak here or there, probably, uh, you know, The the drugs probably didn't help the chemical piece, but in general, once, you know, I was going to doctor, like expensive doctors, my parents, again, had no clue what to do with me. One of them was like a psychopharmacologist at Columbia university. And she was like, supposedly the best. And she was just stacking all these medications on me. And the problem was like I was using, so it didn't really matter how many medications I wasn't going to get better. Um, and, and so, yeah, like for me, I needed to have that spiritual experience and that that's when I got better.
0: I mean, because you were like an atheist. Like, I remember, you know, talking to you about spiritual things like years ago and, you know, and uh, I was always very open about my faith. You know what I mean? Like, I was always obviously very involved in my church, open about my faith. I would talk to you about it and you were always very nice and respectful, but you were just kind of like, yeah, like, no thanks.
1: Yeah, look, I think- i I thought I was super smart, and mm. i I approached it with um almost like you know it's almost like you're so smart that you're stupid, right yeah, yeah. like <laughs> like not you like me right like <laughs> oh no, I know i it. was I was operating under the assumption that you need to see with the naked eye something where it doesn't exist, and uh you know we we talk about like I was beaten into a state of reasonableness where like I finally was open-minded to the idea that like, maybe there's something that can help me. And, uh, and yeah, no, for a long time, like staunch atheists, you know, yeah, and, and I, I told you, like, I refer to you when I take people yeah. through the work, because I remember you were very unapologetic about, you know, your faith. And, and um, I think for me, I thought, okay, if I don't believe in the text of the religion, like the plot of, you know, the New or the Old Testament, then I sort of have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. And, and because I couldn't necessarily buy the text at that time, I had to chalk it up to it's BS. And eventually um, I, you know, I, I sort of recognized that like God for me is not experienced up here. It's, it's in here. And, and then the, the mind kind of came around later. Where was like, okay, I can't see God with my naked eye, but I don't have direct evidence, but I have all of the empirical evidence that I need, right? I can't see the wind, but I see the leaves blowing on the tree. So I know there's wind. I don't question that there's wind. Right. I don't necessarily see God in my eye, but I see the results of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And <laughs> what more tangible result than my own life and my own experience, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, you know, you have to recognize, and, you know, we, do, we talk about this in the first step, I am totally powerless. I lack the power of choice to stop and to stay stopped from using. And I'm insane. I'm literally like the thought that precedes picking up drugs is an insane one, given the consequences that I know lay ahead, given, so by definition, if I feel that way, then I have to believe, well, then I need to find some sort of power. And then maybe if I find that power, I can be restored to sanity, right? Second step. And then in the second step, it's like, I don't even know if I like what I believe at this point, you know, and this was like a couple months into sobriety, but I know that, um, I'm at least I'm laying aside prejudice and I'm open-minded to, you know, whatever that thing may be, you know, and then, you know, I continue to go through the process and, um, you know, faith is a result of results for me. Not that like I pray and I get what I want, but like, you know, leaving rehab, it was like, know fear and faith are opposites right so maybe like 99.999 percent fear and 0.1 percent faith right Mm -hmm. and like i knew i was going to die and i had no other option, so i would just you know get quiet and like ask god for help and like direct my thinking and like help me do the next right thing and Mm -hmm. i would i would be taken care of and that Mm -hmm. kept happening along the way over and over and over and over where the faith grew to be, you know, I'm not in hundred percent trust and reliance all the time. I can be yeah. agnostic in certain areas of my life at times, like not intentionally, but like if I'm having yeah, fear yeah. about career or relationship, I'm naturally not trusting in God hundred percent. Right. Mm-hmm. If I did, yeah. then I wouldn't be fearful in my view. Um, yeah. and so that, that, that's, it's kind of shifted to be the opposite. And, and that relationship has, has developed over the last eight years.
0: That's incredible. I mean, you know, we spoke on the phone the other day in preparation for this. And I said to you, like, I was like, you don't even sound the same, you know? I mean, you sound the same, like you're the, you're still the same Jamie that I knew and loved, but you're different in a great way. Yeah.
1: I love to hear that because you can't always see it yourself. You kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, look, we give off a different energy when we're connected.
0: Totally. Totally. Um, And you said to me on the phone the other day, you said, you know, I remember when, you know, when you would talk about your faith and things like that, I would think like, that's great for her. Like, I'm happy for her because that obviously does something for her, you know? And like, there's clearly whatever, like she, that really does something for her. She loves it. It's real to her. And I wish I could get there, but I just can't be there. Yeah. So it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. No, I, I always really envied what faith, like- the quality that it brought to their life. I just thought I was too smart for that, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, I told you, I'd bring that up because I'm trying to appeal to the person who might be agnostic in some sense yeah. and and convey that like open-mindedness is something that I need to have as I go through this process.
0: Yeah, so talk to me about that. So you sponsor a lot of guys and so you've told us about the steps. So talk to us about sponsoring guys. Like what does that look like exactly?
1: Yeah, so I work with a ton of guys. Um, right now I'm working with like, I don't know, probably eight in name. Um, what does it look like? So it looks like I take them through this, the 12 step process. That's what a sponsor does. Right. So in the very beginning, really the first three steps, it's a lot of handholding. So it's, Hey, you know, call me every day. And it's the two of us, you know, sitting side by side and like reading this book and me asking a lot of questions and sharing my own experience and um you know then you get to a fourth step a fourth step is a lot of, it's it's a moral inventory it's basically an inventory of your whole life right it takes sometimes months of writing um and so then they're kind of like off on their own and you know it's just it's a very intimate relationship um the guy that sponsored me like basically saved my life and by the time you get to the 12th step the 12th step is effectively sponsoring other guys so i'm like very rigorous about it i always make sure that like I'm at capacity because I believe like I have to be of maximum service because a, I need it to maintain what I have. B I owe it to, you know, God, the world, whatever. Um, and like, you know, this, this whole deal turns from like a self-help to a help others type of deal. So like my, whereas like on day one, maybe recovery for me, was like meetings, like a meetings and mm-hmm. like, a little bit of my own step work going through the process. Now it's like 90% taking others through the process.
0: Yeah. But I want to talk about really quickly. So I know sponsoring guys is a huge part of like your recovery of like mm-hmm. you staying clean, like you sponsor these guys. So how long have you been clean?
1: well eight years, Christmas day. So seven okay. years, nine months, give or take. That's awesome. Yeah
0: and I know that you're very focused on your recovery on a daily basis. Like you're really serious about it. What does that look like? Right. So like for people that are listening to this, that just think like, Oh, like he's clean. He's been clean yeah. for almost eight years. Like now it's just like, he yeah. just lives his life. Like, what do you do?
1: There are people out there that in my opinion, they're not real like addicts, alcoholics. They, they were hard drinkers or users and like they needed to stop and they're better off stopping. Right. Yeah. I can just stay clean. Right. Okay. Based on like willpower and self-knowledge for the addict, alcoholic willpower, self-knowledge is not enough. Right. Cause you can't, yeah. your mind will, you know, I already kind of went into that. So for yeah. me, it's about continuing to grow the relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And I have a number of different avenues by which I do that. Right. So what does it look like? You know, it looks like me waking up, you know, I, I, I hit my knees in the morning I usually get, you know, I, I work out every morning and I usually just like sit on my couch for like 15 minutes and just like get quiet. Sometimes it's pure meditation, sometimes it's more um contemplation, right? Sometimes it's noisy up here. My thing is if I don't hit my knees right away, then like I'm already kind of running the show. So I do that, but then I get ready and then I sit down, I get quiet. You know, I just, you know, I, I pray and then I just get quiet and I just listen and um. You know, I go, go to the gym and, you know, I go about my day. There's a bunch of phone calls that come in obviously throughout the day from sponsees. I do my best to like prioritize that and take it, but sometimes I can't, right? Like we do all this to be part of life, not to just like, you know, just be in recovery. Right. So I've been very blessed to like be able to like go out in life and like, like, you know, kill it and like be part of it. Right. But, but the priority is always the recovery because without that, I don't have anything else. So um, it involves, you know, three meetings, two, two, three meetings a week, I would say is where I'm at. Um, I would say like three times a week, give or take, you know, a lot of it's zoom. I have a lot of sponsors up North. Um, it's funny before I moved to Florida, I had a lot down here actually. Um, and I still do, but now, you know, we'll do like one hour sessions and and I'll move them through the process. And then at night, you know, I, I was in investment banking for the last three years, which, you know is 3 a.m., 4 a.m. night. So that was a really good test of of my, you know, commitment to this this process and to God, right? Because sometimes, like when you get in bed at four, like the last thing you want to do is like do a little bit of inventory on your day. And, and by the way, that's how I finish the day by doing inventory, right? So I look at where was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, fearful? Do I own apology? Did I keep anything to myself I should have shared? Was I kind and loving? you know um was i like running the show or was i trusting in god right like i just look at this list of like seven questions or so and and you know like rinse and repeat you know that's uh kind of a day in the life i'm really rigorous about all this and a lot of it is due to the fact that i have a very powerful first step experience right like i was like a really really bad addict and so yeah i know that like the way that this works and i won't get too into like the nitty-gritty of the steps but like the steps, if you were ever, you know, if you ever hear of somebody that like goes back out after some time and they've actually worked the steps, they'll they'll work backwards, right? Okay. So the 12th step is, you know, you sponsoring other guys, right, they'll start helping people. And then 11 is what I just described with the nightly inventory yeah. and the prayer meditation. And that will go out the window. And then, you know, they'll start creating harms, right? The ninth step is amends, right? And then six and seven are having defects removed. So they'll start acting on other defects. And before you know it, like they're back. To their first step and they're starting to think, you know what, maybe it'll be
0: different yeah. this time. That's interesting. That's really, really, yeah. I, okay. That totally makes sense to me. Like just the fact that like you work the steps in order to get clean. And if you're going to fall back into it, you're going to naturally, maybe without exactly knowing it or obviously to the world, but you're going to work them backwards.
1: For, for sure. And the name of the game is like, if, if i could boil all this down to one thing it's how do i get as comfortable in my own skin as i possibly can be yeah and that doesn't mean high that means how do i get as like close to god as i possibly can be right like how do i maintain my spiritual fitness to the maximum yeah. extent and as long as i do that that's why like you notice when i said the day in the life nothing has anything to do with drugs or alcohol right like when we're when we finish the first step, we're done talking about drugs and alcohol.
0: Two through yeah. 12 is
1: all about how do I live life now that I'm sober? We're done talking about that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. 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 So
1: yeah. You know, that's really the name of the game. And then if I'm spiritually fit and I'm comfortable enough in my own skin that I don't want to feel, I don't want to get out of feeling how I'm feeling mm-hmm. because if I want to, if that, if that happens, it's like holding on to monkey bars, right? I can like yeah. white knuckle it for so long before I start to say, f- it or, uh, you know, I, I can, I can, I can do water, but believe the lie. So that's sort of in a nutshell what, what it's all about.
0: That's, that's so enlightening and just eye opening for me, you know? Um, you know, I said this to you on the phone the other day, but I feel like I want to say it again. Like I, I'm sorry. You know, Like I really feel like this past week that I've been reading all about your story and talking to you and watching, I, I have just felt like I failed you, you know, like you were a very close friend to me and I didn't know, like you were totally falling apart. You were dealing with this addiction. And I feel like I just kind of, you know, let you down as a friend. And I'm sorry. And
1: and I accept your apology, but it is like, it's absolutely unnecessary, honestly. Um, I never once over the last, you know, whatever, 11 years thought like she did me wrong or she left me or I never once thought that I really you you and many many others but not like in a spiteful way right Mm -hmm. like I wouldn't want to hang out with me (laughs) like you know what I mean like I would be like running for the hills you know so I have always had like super fond memories of you and I've always thought of you in a great light and and uh there was never any animus or anything like that. I always, you know, treasured our moments together.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I can't tell you how good it is to like hear this story from you, see like how well you're doing. So listen, like once you got clean, then you decided like, hey, I'm going to apply to business school. But you decided to be really honest about your past. I want to hear about that. Cause that's, that's scary. Like yeah. you're like, okay, oh, I'm going to tell Duke yeah. that I'm like, recovery. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, I, I got out of treatment, like I'm living in a halfway, I go through this process and I'm like, literally just like, like throw, we call it the fourth dimension, like catapulted to like, like, like you said, like, you don't like, you, you know, it's my voice, you know, it's my body, but like, I'm, I'm different. Right. So like that happened and then all of the external stuff really just sort of like fell in my lap. Right. Cause you know, I like to talk about like when we straighten out spiritually or when we fix the spiritual piece, like we straighten out mentally and physically. Right. So that's yeah. why I do kind of like flex a lot of the accomplishments and stuff to new guys, not to say like, look what I did, but to say like, look, look, but you know, because that attracts people like when they're yeah. first coming in and they're like, oh no, I want, I want that. And I'm yeah. like, okay. But the way that it happened was not, I just went out and got it. It was, I got good with God with me. And then all of that stuff, it's like. It's like you're swimming with the current now, right? Like the world starts cooperating with you. So yeah, so I, I you know, I, I worked in a firm called Lord Abbott, you know, it was just an upward trajectory. And then eventually I was like, yeah, I feel like I've underachieved a little bit and I'm going to be honest in my business school applications. And there really was no other way to do it. I mean, yeah, sure. I didn't, I didn't like roll out the, the H word, you know, heroin, because that's like right, a right, very right. loaded word but I made it very clear like in and out of rehabs yeah. and this is what my life looks like. And I knew I was going to end up where I was supposed to. And yeah, sure. In hindsight, like, and so by the way, I just took a sponsee, like I helped him. He literally took him through the same process. He just started at Emory and it was cool to be able to like kind of coach him on that piece. But
0: yeah. Yeah. um,
1: Yeah. Like I, I got into some great schools and I went to Duke and it was like the best two years of my life. It was it was amazing. I got to travel the world. I, I got, you know, I made lifelong friends and I got to do it all sober, you know? And, uh, and, and so, you know, I got into the investment banking world, which was, uh, you know, not exactly a breeding ground for spiritual beings. Um, but I like, I'm so grateful for it. Like, you know, I talked about, right. we, We do this to go out and be part of life. Right. So like I wanted to do the most rigorous thing, you know, there's probably a little ego in that too, right? Like I want to say I'm a banker and like like, but I really like just wanted to like be part of life and like like do yeah. the most rigorous thing and like like go for and it. Push you yourself. Like that's always yeah. been my my attitude. Totally. I did that the last three years. It was uh, painful at times. At the end of the day, I'm a very happy customer of investment banking. Like I learned a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with like people way smarter than me and I got to live in the city and it was a great experience for three years, but you know, it was time for uh, a change. And now that's so, all today.
0: All right. So let's go there. So you were talking about it before, but basically you are very, very freshly into this transition out of investment banking and into being the co-founder and CEO of the Sylvia Braffman mental health center. Tell us, tell us about it. we we talked yeah. about it a little bit, but tell us. About yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: It. All right. So the, uh, long story short is, I got a call from a guy named Ben Brathman, who you mentioned in January. And, and he owned a rehab called destination hope that I went to when I was 20. And that was the one that it was in Florida and it was there for like four mm-hmm. months. And he, So he actually kicked me out of rehab because I I, okay. I was just a total disaster. Yeah. And, uh, and he called me and, and we really had no communication over the last 10 years beyond mm-hmm. Like he, we were social media friends. So I think he could sort of like piece together that, you know, I got my stuff together. Well. Yeah, but when I would go down to Florida, I would reach out and I would offer to come speak to the patients. Mm-hmm. So we had like two or three touch points that way. But beyond that, like it was sort of a call out of the blue.
0: Mm-hmm. And he said,
1: Hey, I sold destination. Hope <clears throat> I want to start something a little bit more mental health focused, um, do you want to be involved? I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know, okay, do you want me to like come speak once a, a month? Do you right, want me right. to, uh, you know, write you a check? Like I just didn't know. Right. And, and that basically amounted to the two of us talking every day. This is while I'm doing banking and thank God for COVID. I was really able to like multitask working for home. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, I used my banking skills. Like I I like yeah. created an investor presentation that was like really in the weeds on valuation and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I ran like a broad capital raising process and I raised, you know, a little over a million bucks. And, uh, Ugh. I, you know, basically, you know, we got a beautiful location and down here in Florida, the office is like basically set at this point. And it's just like a beautiful sort of come full circle story where, you know, Ben is not a business guy, he, he, but he's, he's a fantastic operator and clinician. And, and a great, like, industry guy. Like, he was one of the best in Florida to do this. But yeah. he didn't have somebody like me. I didn't, I've always kind of, you know, been interested in this. I didn't have somebody like him, right? Like, I wouldn't have tried to do this without the guy that, that's done this before. Right. Um, And so it's sort of, like, the perfect merging of, like, these skill sets and and our personalities. Honestly, we're both kind of similar. We're, like, a little intense. But, like, like we like to joke around. It's just, like... God, you know, to God's timing is perfect. So
0: yeah.
1: we, uh, we 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 we're, we're going at it. Like I'm CEO. I'm you know running the business. Like you know I have the strategy and finance mind, but I'm also a client advocate to the nth degree. Like just based yeah. on my you know many treatment centers, based on my sponsorship of other guys. Um, totally, he's the clinical guy, and so it just works so perfectly mm-hmm. and. Yeah, we launched our brand a couple, uh, like two months ago, and we are a couple days away from uh, accepting patients. So we were just waiting oh, for wow. that, the licensing to get through. And, and you know, we're going to have a big ribbon cutting on the 13th. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to help a lot of people.
0: Uh, that is awesome. So tell us a little bit about the, about the emphasis on mental health versus just focusing on addiction treatment. Like what makes this place a little different than like a typical like rehab?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of people that, you know, in the industry, they call it dual diagnosis, right? Um, The vast majority of treatment centers are focused purely on substance abuse. And then, yeah, we'll treat whatever you have in addition to that, right? That's sort of their mentality. Mm -hmm. Ben has a really fantastic sort of like clinical philosophy that lumps them both under the umbrella of behavioral health and treats the whole person. And there is a serious lack of mental health primary treatment centers out there, especially in South Florida, right? So there's often people in these treatment centers that they have something else going on. They also may be addicts and they may not, they may just use to alleviate, you know, some of their mental health symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we're taking the angle that like we're primary mental health and we also deal with substance abuse because that population is very underserved and there's a serious need for it. So, you know, my heart was always with like addicts and stuff like that. Like that's what I'm used to, but we can help a lot more people that aren't really being helped right now. And so I think, you know, going back to that 95% quote, the, the idea is we're going to throw the kitchen sink at them. Some people may respond to spirituality. Some people like they really need a medication adjustment and other people yeah. may need group therapy, right? Like we're going to sort of like run Do it the all.
0: gamut
1: and tailor the approach to that person. So, um, it's, uh, you know, Ben had a mental health practice within destination hope, and it was really, really successful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the more I get out and like shake hands and talk to people, they're like, thank God, this is so needed. So I think it's, uh, it's just the signs were all pointing in that direction. We should be primary mental health and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll treat both, but But we're going to start with, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, Um, a lot of the people that like can't really get help in these pure substance abuse treatment centers.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, we'll link in the show notes. We'll link to the website. It's amazing. I mean, like, it's a very comprehensive website. Like, I'm an expert now. Like, after reading (laughs) through the website this weekend, I'm like –
1: I grinded on that thing for a while. Um, It's my website guys started to feel my OCB because I was like, Uh, this this is the wrong blue. Um, Banking will do that to you, but no, it looks great. You found it to be informative.
0: It's incredibly informative. I will link that in the notes. Jamie, this is awesome. Seriously. I mean, we could go on forever. I have so many more questions that I want to ask and things I want to say, but this was amazing. I appreciate this so much in the show notes. Everybody will link the website, but I'll also link to all those articles I was referencing. If you want to hear more of Jamie's story and whatever, but I can't thank you enough. Awesome. Seriously.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Great connecting with you, reconnecting with you. And um, I will, uh, yeah, maybe we'll do part two one day.
0: Absolutely. Hey, I'm always here for a good part two. Thanks so much. James. Awesome. Thanks Kaylin. All right. Bye. Take care. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, caitlinelliot.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions.